0: The gospel is the good news. That by faith alone, your sins have been imputed to Christ and by grace alone, the act of obedience of Christ has been imputed to you. As we start our messages out every week with those words, the intent is to drive that nail deeper and deeper into your mind so that it remains fixed there. It becomes something that is a part of you. It becomes a very easy definition of the gospel when somebody asks you about it. I believe that in the text of Scripture before us this morning, the way that this is now presented to us in even fuller detail is with this argument. I think that's what the author is trying to drive at. What Paul, writing to a group of house churches in the Roman province of Galatia, present-day Turkey, in and around Ankara, What is he trying to get through to this group of Christians who appear to have drifted back in towards an understanding that the law needs to be added to grace in order to truly save them? I believe that he is going to tell them here in these verses that the Holy Spirit saves you from self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit saves you from self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if there is one thing that we need to be very careful of because it is so easily smuggled in to our Christian lives, it is the pursuit of self-righteousness. And if the pursuit alone of self-righteousness was not bad enough, the collateral damage that it does to the people around you and that it does to the church and that it does to the gospel is something that we need to have constantly placed before us. Because if we believe that somehow we are saved by grace, but we are made holy through our own good works at the basis of our own effort, then we will not only become increasingly proud when we are successful, but increasingly despondent when we fail. And in the times when we are successful at living out this self-imposed law system, we're going to look at everybody who doesn't live up to that and feel ourselves to be superior to them. And in the times where we don't live up to it, we will look upon those who do and be envious. In every case, it is at war with the gospel. The great John Gerstner said this one time, quote, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Coming before God with a load of sins, that's understandable to us. But coming before God and realizing that these things we think we've done that are somehow worthy of praise and honor, somehow worthy of at least a token acknowledgement by God, and when He blows those things away, that's when the offense gets particularly deep. The Gospel liberates you then from the very things that you are tempted to go back to that can be defined as nothing else but law. And so by way of outline this morning, I just want to give you a very simple one. I think that you are liberated by the gospel from superstition, isolation, and persecution. Superstition, isolation, and persecution, those are sort of the three headings uh, that we'll look at here in this text of Scripture this morning. So please join me in verse 8. We'll look at the first point, which is superstition, verses 8 to 11. Paul begins, formerly, and that's a very strong contrasting word in the original, sort of saying the opposite now, when you did not know God. And in the English language, we have one word for no, but the Greek had two particular words and they were very different. Please notice that here when he says no, he means objectively, factually. He said, formerly, when you did not even know about God, you did not even know Yahweh existed, uh, you were living in your pagan idolatry, even then, back then, you were enslaved. The word doulos, many of you know that word. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In short, what he's saying is that before the gospel, you were an idolater. Even if you weren't a card-carrying idolater, even if you weren't a temple-visiting idolater, even if you weren't a sacrifice-burning idolater, you are still an idolater. And, and really, that hasn't changed. We are by nature idolaters in our fallen state, and even in our new creation, our hearts are still drawn towards idolatry. We're still drawn towards taking something that is good and making it supreme. Taking something that the Creator has created and worshiping it instead of the Creator. Even at times, concocting in our own minds and refining within our own hearts these idols that are so precious to us that when God sees fit to put His finger upon them, to harm them, to remove them, to diminish them, we realize they become an idol because it's the one thing that were He to try and take it away, we would rise up and curse Him. And I would love to be able to say that at the time of your conversion, that entire refinery of idols is simply obliterated, and it's never a problem again, but we all know better. It's still there. And I know it's still there because Paul is saying to the Galatian church, it was going on at that point. They were going through that. They were experiencing that. He says to them, not only was this the case before you even knew about God and were idol worshipers in the truest sense, but now, look at verse 9, that you have come to know, and this is a different word for know, it means existential knowledge. I know that's a big word that you sometimes only hear in contexts like philosophy, but it just means experiential, experiencing God. There's nothing wrong with experiencing God. I know sometimes in our culture we get nervous around people who seem to have a little too much experience with God. They just seem a little too close, almost like he's real. (laughs) Nothing wrong with having a deep, passionate, warm experience of God. You are his child. He wants to be known by you. And he says here that they are known by God as well as knowing God. They experientially know him, or rather, and rather isn't the opposite, but sort of included in that, they are known experientially by him. There's an intimacy in that relationship. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God, which as we saw last week makes us say Abba Father. It's the closeness that a parent has with a child. He says here that you have rejected that, and in fact, gone back. You've turned away and gone back to the weak and worthless principles of the world. weak simply means that. The word worthless was translated as a beggar. It meant somebody who was hunched over and asking for alms. So imagine that this whole philosophy that they had been embracing before was this weak, pitiful, beggardly system, and they have turned their back on King Jesus… And they have gone back to this worthless, weak beggar of a philosophy of elemental principles. A word that just meant the ABCs, the periodic table, the very basic things of life. Nothing significant or sophisticated. It's just the stuff of the world. And you go back to it, he says. And you were slaves to these things. And now you become slave once more. These idols, these distorted desires, and it shows up for these particular believers, verse 10, because they observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, many religions did that, but most often it was in reference to the Jews. Remember, the Judaizers were trying to get them to reinstall Judaism. Now, it's been a long time since I used a a PC. Do you remember these? Uh, but in my days of using a PC, I would, uh, I would have to install a new operating system every few years and then I would have to install everything to fix the system and so on and so forth. But I do remember that early on in my career with computers, uh, there was something called Windows 95. And, and I'm old enough to actually remember seeing that and using that. But imagine if those of you who are still PC users, and I assume they've gotten much better since 1995, but you were to go out and you were to find on eBay a copy of Windows 95 and bring it home, and then you'd have to go and buy a CD player. Some of you don't even know what those are, but you would find a way to install this on your present-day computer, well, what would happen? You would realize immediately that it is absolutely and totally useless. It can do nothing for you. It does not have the capacity to handle the demands of what you're doing today. Technology has far exceeded anything that it could offer you. In fact, to try to install it now, if you're even able, would break the entire system. Now, now that's sort of a lame comparison, certainly compared to the gospel, but, but maybe the absurdity of it will help you remember. Going back to the law was like trying to reinstall some utterly outdated program into the life of the Christian It's obsolete. It's not necessary. It's meant to have been thrown away. It served its purpose. It was only designed, as it were, in the grand scheme of things, to lead you to something better. The reason they created Windows 95 in the grand scheme of things was to help all of us transition to Apple. (laughs) You see, Paul is so concerned that these Christians would go back and try to reinstall the law that he says it's like going back to the old obsolete things. And essentially it's caused him to worry that maybe he has labored over them in vain. He has labored and labored and labored for them. A word being used later to talk about the labor that a woman goes through in trying to give birth to a child and in the end they turn out to be a stillborn church, all of it in vain. You see, one of the most tragic things is to see Christians turn back to the self-righteousness of idolatry. I was reminded of this earlier in the week as I was thinking about the gospel, or the epistle, I should say, of 1 John, and and you don't need to turn there, but the epistle of 1 John is five chapters, it's the longest of John's epistles, Uh, it is often used to sort of give people these steps or processes or tests by which they should determine whether or not they're really in the faith, and maybe that's helpful for some, but I've seen it weaponized against others. But it ends in a rather abrupt way. I don't think that the Apostle John would receive high marks in his English literature class for the way that he wraps up this epistle, but I believe that in one verse he sums up the entire thing and it goes like this, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's it. It's a summary of the whole epistle. Little children, keep yourself from idols because your heart longs for idolatry, longs to create something that you can have and to hold, something that you can cherish, something that you can turn to. You're not unlike the children of Israel who when the opportunity presented itself made a golden calf, not as a replacement for Yahweh, but as an embodiment of Yahweh. You see, the idols that are created aren't even intentionally made to be the opposite of God. They're just a more manageable form of God. God is too big to get our head around. Grace is too amazing. The peace is too hard to comprehend. The joy seems like it shouldn't be appropriate, and so we want to diminish Him down into something that is a version we can take with us. Catherine and I were in New York City back in April, and we stood at the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, and we looked up and, and we saw this amazing creation, and it's almost impossible to gauge the scale of it. And then we walked in through the gift shop, and for just a few bucks I could have bought a little version of it. And I could have come home and put it on my desk, and if somebody came in they said, what's that? I could say, it's the Statue of Liberty. And if they didn't know about it, they'd say, huh, I thought it was bigger. You see, it's a version that I can carry with me in my pocket. It's it's much more manageable. Idols are like that. They're not trying to replace God oftentimes. They're just trying to make Him a lot more manageable. Well, brothers and sisters, there is no theological gift shop where you can take the gospel into a smaller version, put it in your pocket, and carry it around. It is meant to be something that is so transformative and new creation instilling uh, that it radically blows apart all the categories that you had up until that point, and that's what Paul wants to draw them back to. And there is nothing more category-busting than forcing you to divest yourself of all the superstition and religion and idolatry that were the training wheels that were leading you to Christ. Well, the second one we'll call isolation, look what he says in verse 12. He carries on, brothers, and I believe he's saying this with kindness may I just stop for a moment and say to you, I don't entirely understand the approach to ministry that I have seen in some places where pastors feel compelled to constantly yell at the church. They always seem angry. Have you ever been in situations like that? I've, I've been in situations like that. I've, I've been in chapel services like that when I was in seminary. I've been at conferences. And I sit there, and I'm like, why are you yelling at me? Like, what have I done? You seem so angry. Like, why does this truth of the gospel make you so mad, and it just seems like there's an endless finger-wagging of never doing enough or never being good enough, and that's like the whole purpose of the ministry, I guess, is to make you feel bad uh, so that you don't fall into some lazy sort of trap of believing that, I don't know, maybe Christ already accomplished this for you. And so what happens is Paul dials himself back. He says, I'm perplexed by you, I'm upset, I don't understand, but I'm not going to rail against you. I'm not going to come as I had to do to the Corinthians and bring the rod, that rod of correction, that rod that was used to kill lions and kill bears and protect sheep. And I believe he's sort of softening the letter a little bit here. And he is saying to them, I'm not angry with you, brothers. But I entreat you. Look what it says. I entreat you. I implore you. I, 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 yeah, I'm getting you by the collar, but I'm saying, brother, it's because I love you. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Please don't go down this road. Don't be torn away from me. Not because I have some complex where I can't lose anybody from within my own little sphere and world and flock. No, no, no. What I mean is don't be pulled away from me because I gave you the sincere gospel and they're not. I'm not trying to bash them because I'm jealous of them, I'm trying to protect you from them because they're trying to give you something that isn't true. They're trying to feed you poison. That's why I want you here. And so it's with that attitude that He says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I believe this is the essence of discipleship. Discipleship is not just the one part, become as I am. Have you ever met so-called disciples like that? Discipleship means become as I am. In fact, if they were honest, they'd write a book called Become As I Am, Volume 1. How to live your life, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be wonderful this, excellent that, perfect this, how to live up to the standard that I have created because of my understanding. Paul says, when you become like me, it's not because I expect you to just follow me and do everything that I do. He says... Be like me in the sense that I have become like you. Now, if we go too far to the other extreme, that's also a problem. Sometimes people don't want to be involved in other people's lives. They would rather just get down in the dirt where they are and say, hey, we're all the same. We're all a mess. We're all screwed up. We're all just sinners. We're all just, hey, don't worry about it. Okay, both of those aren't helpful. Instead, what you see is that Paul is blending these two ideas by saying this, become as I am, be an example, because I have been empathetic with you. I can only tell you to become as I am because I have come to where you are and I have wrestled through these things with you, because your pathway is going to be different than mine. But I am willing to engage with you and enter into where you are to help move you along through this by the glory of God, for the glory of God, and by His grace." I really think this is what Jesus is doing in the exchange He had both with Mary and Martha. Do you remember? When Martha comes out, she's the busybody. She's the one who is running around trying to do all the work, and he doesn't really interact very much with her. When Mary comes out, and she's a complete mess, or he goes out to her, he just gets down with her in her grief and weeps with her. You've got to be able to, to, to be where the person is to guide them out from where they are, and that's what Paul is doing with these Galatians. And so he says to them, you did me no wrong then or now. I'm not personally offended. It's not my ministry that I'm trying to protect. It's not my group that I'm trying to preserve. He says, you've done me no wrong, but you know, verse 13, and again, this is the objective kind of knowing, you know objectively that it was, and here's the better translation, in weakness of the flesh, literally, that I preached the gospel to you at first, You know this. You were there. He says, I I preached the gospel to you the first time, and I was in terrible shape physically. Something was going on. We don't know what it was, but he was in terrible shape physically. He was not impressive. When they compared him to the other public speakers of the day, he was not number one. He wasn't able to, to fill the arena because of his gifted oratory. He was weak, he was sick, and he comes to them with this simple gospel, and he says, look, you believed, and it wasn't because I was more persuasive or the more charismatic speaker. It was because I had the truth, and you know that. He says, I came to you in weakness of flesh, and I preached the gospel to you first, and though my condition was a trial to you, I think that means there was a temptation. That's what the word means, temptation. It was a temptation for them to reject Paul's gospel because Paul was so unimpressive. It was a temptation to reject Paul's gospel, because Paul was so unimpressive. And yet, he says to them, you didn't do that. As a matter of fact, you did not scorn or despise me, but, the strongest contrast possible, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." Wow, that's a pretty impressive response, isn't it? Now, let's be careful here. He's not saying that he was received as a God or as God, but he's saying, you didn't just reject me and despise me. No, uh, you received me almost as if it was Christ himself who had brought the gospel to you. That's how warm your reception was. That's how filled with joy you were. That was what we get to enjoy, our fellowship together around this. It's amazing, he says. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, this is a hyperbolic statement. It's like telling somebody I I'd cut off my right arm for you. You don't really literally mean it. This is Paul's way of saying you would have done that for me. You would have gouged out your eyes for me. That was how deep and intense your love was for me. Have you ever experienced that with people? You ever had somebody that you've uh, been working with, maybe you've discipled somebody, uh, maybe somebody you've done ministry with, and, uh, and for a time, the two of you are, are, are bound very, very deeply together. You're, you're, you have this amazing relationship. There, there's mutual love, mutual respect, and then all of a sudden, their heart just grows cold towards you. All of a sudden, they, they just pull away. They reject you. They, they don't want to be around you anymore. They uh, get led astray by somebody else. And before long, they're not only uh, no longer interested in being around you or, or learning from you or with you, but they've, they've gone and attached themselves somewhere else, and now they're criticizing you and undermining you and, and, and trying to make it seem like everything you taught them and did with them was wrong. Paul says, this is what I'm going through. This is the isolation. This is what happens. He goes, we went from being the closest of friends to now almost being enemies. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's all I've done. I, I've just told you the truth of the gospel, and, and what, all of a sudden now we're enemies? I mean, this is the thing that bound us together all this time, and, and now all of a sudden you're against me? What's going on? I don't understand this. Paul is rightly perplexed. Again, not angry. He's not being sarcastic with them. He's not attacking them. He doesn't have his ego hurt. He's confused. He says, They. Who's the They? Verse 17. The They are the Judaizers. The the They are the people who are coming in with these legalistic additions to the gospel. They make much of you. They are literally zealous after you. Oh, they're excited by you. They make you feel great. They make you feel like you're so important. Oh, they wrap their arms around you. They love you. They make much of you. And it's really hard sometimes to resist the people who make much of you, but he says it's for no good purpose. It isn't good for you, because what they want to do by making much of you is to shut you out. Now, this is a very interesting word. The word shut you out, and forgive the Greek here, but I I just think you can hear it, and I hope you'll find it interesting. Uh, The word shut you out is the word ekleo, and it literally means out, shut, and it's the opposite of the word ecclesia. You've probably heard that before, Ecclesia, That means to call out. Now, the ecclesia word often used to describe the church, is the called out ones. You're called out from the world. You're called into this. You're called into this fellowship. And, and Paul says, you're now as a result of these other teachers being shut out. You're not part of the ekklesia, you're part of the ecleo. You're not part of the called out, you're part of the shutout. And now people are not able to access you because you have been told by them to pull away from that body, pull away from that church, pull away from that gospel, pull away from that influence, and come over here where we will make much of you so that you can make much of us. That's always the purpose. He says they have shut you out, rest of verse 17, that in order that, purpose clause, you may make much of them. Oh, they are zealous after you so that you would be zealous after them. You know, that's what false teachers love to do. They love to accumulate to themselves these students and followers who are going to be made much of because they'll be told how wise and discerning they are for having seen these things. which. So few other people seem to see. And then in turn, those followers will then build up and be zealous for those leaders and they'll form their own little inner circle, their own tribe, frankly, their own cult. And before long, they become known by the name of their leader, not the name of Christ. Oh, you're a follower of so-and-so. And you all know what this is like. You've all met those people. They can't hear anything from anyone without cross-referencing it with their favorite teacher. Paul has attacked this over and over again. It's not new. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. But what Paul wants to do is pull these Galatians back in and say, stop following the legalist. Come back and follow Christ, not me. Come back and follow Christ. So he goes on, verse 18, it is always good to be made much of or to be zealous for a good purpose. He says being excited about these things, it's not wrong. It's not even wrong for people to hold you in high esteem and tell you that you are growing in your understanding of the truth of the gospel. This is good. And not only when I am present with you, he says here, but always, it's always good. It's always good to be zealous for a good purpose. Not only when I'm with you, but even when I'm away, stay being zealous. I'm not asking you to stop being zealous because I'm gone. No, continue. Listen, a a proper uh, preacher, pastor, minister, evangelist, whoever, um, if they're really doing it for the right reason, what what they want to do is they want to go somewhere. They want to to communicate God's Word clearly and and hopefully with conviction. And, And then their greatest joy is to see people continuing on is to see people now on their own, by the power of the Spirit, growing and learning. They, they don't need to be the one who is the constant source. They don't need to continue to be invited back every year to be kind of the representative head of that movement. They're happy to see it continue to grow without them. That's what true ministry looks like. That's what true missions looks like. It's what true church planting looks like. And so Paul says, it's wonderful to be zealous, just be zealous all the time. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I'm back in labor again. I thought I'd given birth, but it turns out I'm back in labor again. (laughs) Now, I've never given birth. Quote of the morning. But as difficult as I might even possibly imagine what giving birth would be like, I've been present at, at four of them. I was trying to think to myself, what's the closest parallel? And forgive me if this is absurd. I just don't know how else to describe it. Imagine, if if you will, that you have just gone through labor and you've given birth only to find out moments later there are twins, that you thought it was over, you you thought everything was done, and then all of a sudden the doctor says, "Um, excuse me, I think I need to tell you something. It's just begun again. There's a second child. Paul is in a sense, and again, forgive the absurdity of the comparison, but Paul is in a sense saying, I'm in labor again. I thought that this was over. I thought I'd given birth. I thought you were a proper healthy church. And now I'm wondering, maybe that was in vain. And he says to them, I'm in labor. I experience the labor pains, not because I want you to kind of be born of me, but I want you to be born of Christ. Paul says, I take all the labor pain, but none of the joy of the birth, in the sense that it's not me I want you to be like, it's Christ who I want you to be like. I'm in labor until He is seen in you. And so he's back at this terrible crossroads of wondering where they're at and imploring them not to abandon the gospel. I wish, verse 20, I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed. I am at a loss about you. You've been isolated, you've been pulled away, and I just don't know what's going on. At this point in the sermon, I just want to make a point of clarification for us. I'm concerned that in our context we use the word legalism uh, at times when it's actually not the appropriate term to use. I believe that sometimes we use the word legalism or legalistic to describe brothers and sisters in Christ who simply have a weaker conscience. They are simply the weaker brother, the weaker sister. There are certain things that some Christians will do and other Christians won't do. Uh, There are certain Christians that say, well, if the Bible draws the line at this, I'm going to draw my own line five or six steps before that. Uh, In fact, that's how their conscience is informed. And Romans 14 says, far be it from you to make a Christian do something against their conscience, even if it is not outlawed in Scripture. Those are weaker brothers. But sometimes we describe them as legalistic, and I would like for us to be careful about that and really retrain our thinking. They're not legalistic. They're just weaker brothers or weaker sisters. A true legalist is this, somebody who wants to add works to the gospel in order to be saved. And believe it or not, those people are actually fewer and far between. I truly haven't encountered very many people in my context who would literally say that on top of faith in Jesus Christ, you must do these works in order to be saved. Some people get close, but there are very few. And I think if they get close even, it's good to ask some questions and evaluate. But when Paul is talking about legalistic people, he is talking about those like the Judaizers who say you simply cannot be saved by believing alone, by receiving and resting in the finished work of Christ. They had to add to that these works of the law. The closest thing that we have in our context, and we've talked about this before, it's addressed in that wonderful book, The Whole Christ is the idea that somehow repentance or a deep feeling of personal surrender or an outward expression and action are all required in order for us to experience the salvation that comes from being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the closest thing that we have, and of course, we deal with that when it comes up. But here, Paul is dealing with a very specific category. So it has caused isolation to occur as a result. Now, let's look at the last one, and it's just persecution. It's very interesting. He wraps up by giving this tale. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Have you not heard the law? You desire to be under it, but do I need to remind you about what the purpose of the law was? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. He's taking this mother metaphor now of being in birth, Uh, being in labor, and and he is applying it. He says there are these two sons, there are these two women, there are these two covenants, there are these two mountains, there are these two cities. I mean, he's going to go through this whole thing for a moment and just follow along. We'll, we'll, We'll explain it. It's not that complicated. But he says that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. We all know this story. Abraham got impatient with God's promise, and Sarah said to him, here, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar and have a child by her, and that will be the promised child. And Abraham goes along with it, and they have a child named Ishmael. And so you've got these two children, because Isaac was given… Sarah gave birth to Isaac later, and so you have these two women, two children. This is the context. Verse 23, but the son of the slave… that was. Hagar's child, Ishmael, the one of the slave, was born according to the flesh, meaning that Abraham made that decision on his own. That wasn't what God told him to do. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Sarah gave birth by the promise of God. It was a miracle. She was barren. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Please pause for just a moment. Generally speaking, we don't interpret the Bible allegorically. As a general rule that is not an acceptable form of hermeneutics. Next week, when Andrew starts his class on Bible interpretation, he's not going to tell you that one of the approaches you can take is allegory. And if he does, I'll be teaching the second class. (laughs) It's not normally an acceptable way, but it doesn't Mean it can never be done, and when you're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter, guess what? You can do what He inspires you to do, and that's exactly what Paul does here. He is allowed to interpret allegorically, and he does it with this one verse to make his point. He says it can be interpreted allegorically this way. These men, these women are two covenants. So, you've got a covenant of law, you've got a covenant of grace, as it were, covenant of enslavement, covenant of freedom. And he says, one is from Mount Sinai. This is where the law was given. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. That law that was given brought you into slavery to the law. She is Hagar. She is the servant woman that Abraham had a child with. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia as an allegory. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Here's what he's saying. The allegory is this. You have Hagar. Hagar has a child by the flesh, not by the promise. That flesh child is the child that goes to Mount Sinai and delivers the law, as it were, to the present-day Jerusalem, which was still standing when Paul wrote this. In Jerusalem, which is where the headquarters of the Jewish faith was, He is telling these Gentiles, who are not even Jews, that those Jews go to Jerusalem thinking that they are somehow serving the covenant child of Abraham, but in reality, that good law, which was meant to point them to Christ, has been retained, and it has now become a law of slavery. That program which was meant to be abandoned when something new came along, has been reverted to. That Jerusalem is now the epicenter of slavery. And he says, you don't want to go back under that. In reality, you are not children of the slave woman, but of the free. Where does she come from? Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above, the spiritual Jerusalem The whole Jerusalem to which we look one day at the resurrection that we will enjoy with Christ forever, where there is no temple in that Jerusalem because He is the temple and He fills it. That Jerusalem, the one above, is the one that is free and she is our mother. We are sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. Don't go back to being a child of Hagar. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. (laughs) He reaches back into Isaiah 54, verse 1. And this portion of Isaiah is when the prophecy rounds a corner and, and he says to the Jewish people who have been subject to the desolation of captivity, that the Jerusalem that lays in ruins will one day be a thriving, prosperous Jerusalem again. It will be a Jerusalem that has metaphorically given birth, as it were, to millions of children. And it would have been impossible for them to understand that. They're looking at the ruins of Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, no, God has a plan one day to restore it in the new earth. And he borrows that language. And it's absolutely clear that that's the interpretation because he says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free, for it is written. Here's what that verse is pointing to, the Jerusalem above. Now that's understood. That's what Isaiah was talking about. And so he goes back and reiterates it, verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. You're not an Ishmaelite. You're from Isaac. You're from Abraham. You're a child of promise. You're a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. But verse 29, again, strong contrast. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Oh, Galatians, you who are going back to the law, you're being beaten by that Jewish law. You're being tormented by it. You're being clubbed by it. You're being whipped by it. You're being chained by it. You're being abused by it. You're going back to your abuser, back to your oppressor. Why are you going back? In 1973, four people were taken hostage at a bank, and after they were released, they not only refused to press charges against their captor, but went out of their way to try to defend him. It happened in Stockholm and it has since been called Stockholm Syndrome, the bizarre psychological problem where people actually want to go back under the abuse of their oppressor. This is what these believers were demonstrating, some kind of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome going back in under that very thing that they had been liberated from. Verse 30, but what does Scripture say? Going back to that story in Genesis of Ishmael and Isaac, as Ishmael was abusing Isaac, it goes back there in Genesis 21.10 when Sarah steps in and says, enough is enough, get rid of this woman and her son. She says to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. She says, get him out of here. That Ishmael, that Hagar, they get nothing out of this inheritance. And Abraham did a rather unkind thing. He sent that woman or 13-year-old son out into the desert to die. Now, he's not condoning that activity, but he's saying that's what you need to do. Do that with legalism. Do that with the law. Do that with your effort to somehow earn merit in the eyes of Christ. Do that. Be so deliberate with it that you grab a hold of it and throw it out into the wilderness to die. That's his, that's his response. It's heavy, isn't it? To say to a bunch of Gentiles who had recently become impressed by these Jews, who say, if we just slather on some old covenant law, then you guys will really look good in the eyes of God. He says, no way, roll it up and throw it away. So brothers, verse 31, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He says that to them, and I say that to you today. Brothers and sisters, superstition, isolation, and persecution. It's very common even today among believers who are attracted to what they see as some higher standard of holiness. Be careful that you don't fall prey to that, especially from those who would seek to bring you into bondage and isolation to make you followers of men, not followers of Christ. This is common even in churches. It was very recently that I had the opportunity to make the acquaintance of somebody that I have respected for a long time, having read much of his work, and he says this in one of his writings, quote, as a legal preacher, speaking about those pastors who frankly seem to engage in this within their church, let me give you a warning. Some of you might be visiting with us. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what churches you're a part of or have been a part of or maybe tempted to be a part of, but let me just give you this as a warning from a brother who's had a lot of experience. He says this, quote, as a legal preacher, he has control of his people, of his church, of his session, of his whole life, his identity. As long as people have the idea that they have to do something to earn favor with God or keep favor with God, the preacher is in charge. The moment they learn that it's a free gift, he's no longer the boss. He's just a minister announcing good news. That's a demotion for which he's not ready," unquote. Brothers and sisters, may it never be that we tolerate here at this church preachers, pastors, who seem to think it is their responsibility to impose upon you their own understanding of things and become the boss, but rather may it be that we are only those ministers who happily, joyfully, and with an encouraging tone, reminds you of the good news, where to find the free food, where to find the wine, where to find the goodness of God poured out for you in all of his lavish abundance. My concern is that some people who remain for a long time in a situation like that end up becoming like the main character in 19… 84, and the pastor becomes big brother, and you become Winston, and after you've given up your liberty in Christ, you embrace your abuser and think you love him. This was Paul's greatest concern for the Galatians, and I can channel that to say it would be my concern for you as well. Be careful about what you go back to, namely the idols of the heart. Be careful about isolation, about finding others in some community of discontentment some echo chamber of affirmation that you have found the only one true way from another individual. Avoid the persecutions, that golden cage of religion that so often holds people because it just feels so good to be told what to do all the time. It just feels so good to have all the answers. I don't have to think about anything. It is all done for me. It's an all-inclusive. Christianity, and I just get to sit on the boat and enjoy it. That is not what you've been called to in Christ. And so be very careful about what you take in and what you allow to become a defining characteristic of your walk. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful reality and how clear and simple it is. We thank you for the boldness with which Paul lovingly addresses these Galatians, men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, whom he loves profoundly. Lord, he has revealed to them, and in turn, you have revealed to us the very common characteristics that those who would embrace a system of legalism often use in order to win over converts to their cause. I pray that you would grant for our own people here much wisdom and discernment, that they would be able to see that from a distance and run from it. I pray that for me personally and any one of our teaching elders here, that, that we would not have any attitude to acquire for ourselves a following of individuals where they look to us instead of to you and the Holy Spirit for the guidance that they need to live in accordance with your will. I pray that the only thing that we would ever dispense from this pulpit would be the good news of the free grace of Christ in the gospel, that we would allow scripture to speak for itself knowing that it will be received by people at different stages in their spiritual maturity, that we would not put stumbling blocks in front of the weak, that we would not have a church filled with people who judge or who despise, but that we would live together in perfect harmony around the wonderful truth of the gospel that it would be the one thing that comes to define us now and until you return. For it's your name we pray. Amen.